For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Real quick before we start the show, just wanted to let you guys know you can get the show two days early by joining our Patreon. Even for a buck, you can listen to the show two days early. Go to patreon.com slash analog talk and we got a bunch of stuff over there. Check it out and uh, yeah, enjoy the episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Analog Talk, a film photography podcast. I'm your host, Chris. I'm Tim. And today we'd like to welcome back Dave Bias to the show. Hi, Dave. Hello. Hey. Thank you for coming back on and joining us. We're excited to get all the updates from you. Of course. I'm always happy to do this. <laughs> always <laughs> happy. <laughs> Before we get into all that stuff, can you kind of give our listeners a little background on you and who you are and how you got into photography and all that? Um, oh boy, that's a that's an interesting <laughs> story, a long story. Uh, I'll try to I'll try to give the short version. So um, I used to be a full time graphic designer in the music business. I made CD covers, um, so you can understand why I needed to change professions. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. R.I.P. CD covers. I made, uh, you know, T-shirts, posters, you know, whatever for a lot of uh, indie bands. And back in 2003, a couple of really good friends of mine uh, who were also in a band uh, asked me to shoot photos for them using a camera that they had rented. And it was a Hasselblad. Oh, nice. And it was the first time in, I mean, since I was little that I had used a manual camera and the first time I had ever used a medium format camera and it, it, it just completely captivated me. Not only were the photos that I shot, we only shot like two rolls of film and I got a lot of keepers out of just those two rolls. But it, you know, there was something about the process of using a camera in manual mode that I had never experienced before. I had mm. always been like point and shoot or autofocus, whatever. Yeah. And I never liked my photos. And I discovered when I shot this Hasselblad, all the little things you got to do, pulling the dark slide and, and you know, <laughs> making sure everything is in proper focus and taking meter readings. And there was something about that. Well, obviously, I mean, everyone knows this now. It slows you down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I realized that that was actually the missing magic sauce to me being, uh, uh, you know, interested in photography was that I needed to like what I shot. And in order to like what I shoot, I need to be very, very methodical and slow about it. I mean, that was really the beginning um, for me. I, at the same time that that was going on, I was also kind of an eBay nut buying and selling <laughs> random stuff on eBay. And when I, you know, this is now 15 years ago, uh, 16, almost 17 years ago. And eBay was a very different animal back then. And when I started looking around to see what sort of like 
old-fashioned camera I might want to buy. I was just astounded at how much how much was out there, how much of it still worked. After all these many, many years, I fell in love with bellows. I, you know, started buying every camera that had a bellows. Mm-hmm. If it had a colored bellows, even better. Uh, and I would buy them. I'd run a couple of rolls of film through them. And if I didn't love them, I'd, I'd sell them back on eBay. Yeah. Oh, and right. I and I think everyone has probably gone through this process to some degree or another. Yeah, for sure. If you're <laughs> if you're just jumping into film photography in the last few years, eBay is maybe not the best place to go. It used right. to be amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, my first Pentax six seven kit I got, bef- you know, I don't know, ten years ago, and I paid three hundred dollars for the camera, two oh. lenses, and a metered prism. <laughs> You know, these days you can't even touch a camera body for that much. Nope. Um, no. You know, Those are good old days. Yeah, and and I went through a lot of different cameras. Um, I've eventually sort of settled on a few that that I really love, but still to this day, if I'm at a flea market or if there's some interesting thing I see online that is a camera that I haven't used before, if I can get it at a decent price. I usually buy it, knowing full well that I'll probably sell it back. Yeah, but yeah. It, it, there's just something about the experience of using all these vintage cameras that I, I I enjoy. And then for me, you know, this this kind of reintroduction to film photography, which I knew as a child because I'm you know I'm older and and I grew up with film cameras all over my house. Mm-hmm. But you know, back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, even film was the only way you had to take a picture. And so because we're human beings and we're lazy, (laughs) film was a chore. Yeah. And I just grew up with this sense that there were a small group of people who shot film professionally for art or for commerce. And then everybody else just had to use it. There was no other option. And you had to go to the photo mat and drop it off and you had to get your crappy double prints from the mm-hmm. doubles. Yeah, from the from the uh, pharmacy, which I never really understood why pharmacies like where you go to get pain medication. Yeah, that, that is, that is where is you weird. also get your film yeah. processed. Yeah. I never really understood that. Um, That's funny. But coming back to it in the sort of throes of the digital re- revolution in the early two thousands, I had a completely different sense about it. Uh, not only was, did I find a process that worked for me, but I had this growing sense that it was destined for the dust pile, you know, and, and I didn't want that to happen. I really enjoyed film. I think I found a way to work that appealed to me that didn't work with digital. And early on, I, you know, I started working with the toycamera.com forum when it was online. I helped make this toy camera handbook. I was eager to jump in to the back end of it, you know, to, to be behind the scenes, so to speak. Um, the same as I was in the music business, I was very behind the scenes. I'd never performed. I don't Mm. play an instrument, but I worked in the music business in just about every other way that you can imagine. And so my initial, you know, idea was I want to work in the film business and that didn't actually happen, though, until 2008, when the Impossible Project was getting started. I had fallen in love with Polaroid film again, uh, <laughs> mostly because of my SX-70. Mm-hmm. Yes, and yes. I had, um, st- uh, my girlfriend and I had started to collect Sun 660 cameras, the autofocus, the autofocus <laughs> cameras, and we were going to do a little like uh, weddings and bar mitzvahs business. And I applied for a wholesale membership and blah, blah, blah. And then like two months later, they announced they were going to stop making film. Oh, my goodness. And I started with a friend of mine that I had met on Flickr uh, named Sean Tubretti. I started um, SayPolaroid.com. That kind of opened a doorway to me talking to Doc Caps from, uh, at the time, it was called Unsaleable.com. But uh, he eventually was the guy who bought the last Polaroid factory and started the Impossible Project, blah, blah, blah. And I just kind of um, made myself available, uh, if necessary, <laughs> to work with the company. And, and he eventually asked, asked me to help start up the U.S. company, which I did. And I worked diligently at that job for about five years. Then uh, left there, started looking around to see what else I might do in the film business. There's not 
course, a whole lot of opportunities unless you want to start something <laughs> yeah. yourself, yeah. like a podcast or yeah. a, a store. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but there are a whole lot of like, you know, career paying opportunities. And I discovered, I, I was aware of Ferrania for years because I loved Ferrania Solaris 126 film. I was aware of them. I was aware that they had closed. And I learned one day that uh, this guy in Italy was talking about relaunching it. So I got in touch with Nicola Baldini. I sent him an unsolicited cold call email. And just like with the Impossible Project, I was like, here I am. This is me. This is what I do. This is what I think I can help with. Do you want my help? <laughs> and um, we started talking. We had a bit of a meeting of the minds in terms of like our philosophies about not just about the brand and stuff like that, but about the way the fit, the industry um, needed to adjust to the 21st century. Yeah, um, yeah. This kind of basic idea that if you build a factory that's, that's designed to make 10 million of something, it's really difficult to make 1 million. Right. Because the, the factory is designed to make 10 million. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, we had, both of us had witnessed the struggles that, well, particularly Kodak, because they were very public about it, their efforts to downsize to get to a place where they could uh, still produce film and do it economically in a way that didn't run them into bankruptcy. Uh, which, of course, happened. What Nikola described to me was an opportunity that I thought was brilliant. And that was, okay, you know, the government wanted to sell the entire factory. 20-some buildings wow. over many hundreds of acres, most of which were shut down. And they had shopped around a business plan to various other companies saying, hey, if you want a base of operations in Europe, we have this factory, it's, it, it works. And of course, no one was interested about in buying the whole oh, place. Man. That Jeez. just breaks my heart. <laughs> no. Well, you know, the simple fact is that until a couple of years ago, everyone was worried about making less film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And how they were going to do that and still survive and still do it economically and, and, and not drive up their costs. And, and it's only literally in the past couple of years that all the efforts of the past decade have sort of come to a head where now there are shortages mm. yeah, because that's crazy. people that's aren't crazy. making enough film. Yeah. Uh, regardless, we loved this idea that we could take, we could cherry pick from this giant campus and all of its machinery yeah. and make something new that had a much smaller footprint, that was much more flexible, that didn't require us to coat film 24-7 mm. without ever stopping, that allowed us to change what we wanted to do sort of on the fly in a way that big manufacturers can't. And I particularly love this idea because I don't know if I'm a pessimist or whatever, but I feel like you know, all things being cyclical, there's probably going to be another dip in the market at some point in the future. Yeah. And in order to survive such a thing and still continue to make film economically, I feel like the smaller footprint is, is really necessary. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, all of these things that I've done in my past really felt and still feel today like they were leading to this, to me working with Film Ferrania. Mm. A lot of my efforts to kind of get in behind the scenes, I think have, have been, um, just lucky <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> um, but with film Franny, I think I have an opportunity to really not just do what I want to do, but I have a, a partner who completely agrees with me on almost everything. And we have an opportunity to put into action a lot of things that I learned during the time I worked at impossible and even stuff that I, uh, learned prior to that about not just from the industry side of making film at the right scale, but also about how to not be this kind of monolith of a company yeah. that yeah. that no one can interact with on any kind of real level. And um, Nicole and I are both very interested in the idea that over time, within certain limitations, of course, we, we of course, can't get to know every single customer individually, right. but we want to make ourselves accessible. And... Yeah. We want to do things for the community um, that 
we haven't had the opportunity to do so far uh, because we, you know, have been figuring out how to become a factory. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there's a lot of stuff that he and I have talked about over the years that is still kind of in the to-do list of things mm -hmm. that we want to do to help support not just our own brand, but the, the wider community of people who shoot film. That transparency is huge these days, too. People people love that. It's also very refreshing to know that there is like a to-do list, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> we're going to do oh, some things, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, we're 90% to-do list. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like one or two things checked off. Still. Um, yeah. Man. So when, when the government was trying to sell the building, were they still producing film or was it just kind of like at a standstill? No, it was after the, after production had ended. Okay. The government yeah. came in because there was, um, basically the factory sits in a region of manufacturers, of other mm -hmm. manufacturers. And it also happens to be relatively close to the Mediterranean. Ooh. Okay. And the government didn't want speculators to move in and turn these buildings into um, expensive apartments or hotels. Yeah, yeah. Smart. Um, yeah. Or try to make it into something that it didn't really fit there. They wanted to keep, especially the valley that we're in, they wanted to keep it manufacturing. So they came in, basically took over ownership of most of the campus. There was still a company called Ferrania Technologies at the time mm. who were selling into the pharmaceutical industry. And they've since gone, they've had financial problems. I don't even, I haven't talked to Nikola about it in several months, so I don't even know if they're still around. But that's when they began shopping around this, this business plan for another company to come in and basically just reopen the doors and pick up where everything left off. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and, no one in their right mind would have done that um, right, right. because there was no need to restart the big coder. Right. You know, yeah. there just wasn't the demand, no matter how optimistic you were about the resurgence <laughs> of film, it just made too much film. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And wow. right. I mean, and, and without any option to, I mean, maybe if Kodak had bought it, mm then yeah. they could have run it to produce maybe like one kind of film and run it like maybe they just say, okay, the factory in Italy is where all Triax is going to be made from now on. Yeah. Maybe that right. would have yeah. been viable, but that would have been such a huge expense for Kodak. Right. They would have been divided. I mean, you start talking about different staffs, different governments, different regulations. It quickly becomes more than anyone wants to think about. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah. Uh, Ilford had some equipment staged on the campus that they owned that they had worked in cooperation with the old Frania company to help to maintain and operate. Ilford yeah. came in and, and they basically took back their machines. They also got a few other bits of equipment. Other companies, smaller companies that Frania had been in partnership with, you know, got little bits here and there. But for the most part, when Nicola and Marco found the campus, it was intact. Wow. wow. Um, pretty much like the day it was closed. That's so crazy. I would have loved to yeah. see that. <laughs> how, many, how many years in between was that? Well, they first, you know, walked up to the gate, I think, in the fall of 2012. Wow. And as far as I know, the last person left the campus in 2010. Okay. Okay. I think they stopped making film earlier than that, but they had some contracts that they had to ride out and, right. you know, so... The wind down in a big company like that is always, you know, takes a while. True. Even, a, even though they technically stopped shipping film probably two years before that, they still yeah. had some government contracts in various governments around the world or contracts with third parties that they were making film for that they needed to finish. Now, when we moved in, for example, we found racks and racks and racks of empty Konica 35 millimeter film canisters wow. they had already been printed with the conica logo yeah and they were just waiting to be filled and we don't know how old they are technically but we assume that they're from you know right at the end of production that's crazy yeah so when you guys moved in you had a bunch of problems right wasn't there like major issues with the building and codes and all kinds of stuff like that yeah i mean of course there were problems um i, I think you know one of the things that we've tried to convey over the years 
that's really hard to talk about in any kind of succinct way uh, yeah. is the, the nature of our contract at the beginning and the nature of our contract now with our landlord, yeah. the government. Yeah. Basically, in the beginning, and really right up until about the end of 2015, we had a fairly open-ended, they called it the R&D contract with the government, which basically gave us a lot of liberty without having to adhere to safety standards and governmental regulations. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. And, and the idea was not to put us in danger, but to give us the opportunity to come into the yeah. buildings to discover what there was to discover, to try everything and see what worked and what didn't. Mm -hmm. And then to, we had eventually convinced them that we wanted to make a, a, a sample batch of film and that was going to be the color reversal film for Kickstarter backers. And then we've always known since the beginning that that R&D contract, which was very, like I said, it was loose. Mm. It, it, it had all kinds of um, things available to us that weren't available to us once we entered into a proper factory status interesting uh, hmm. where we had to be accredited as a factory in italy right. making this product and it's it's one of those things like i don't even know all the minute details of the differences between these contracts but they were significant um, because one allowed us to do pretty much whatever we wanted yeah and the other one is full of all kinds of regulations that we need to follow. And of course we want to follow um, yeah, right. most of them environmental, most of them dealing with work safety. And of course we need to follow all those things. Um, but it's hard to convey to people, especially people who may just pay attention now and then uh, the difference between our working environment in 2013, 2014, and most of 2015 versus what happened after we became accredited, where right. we had to really buckle down and make sure that we had adhered to all these rules. So, yeah, when, when we, when we, you know, mid 2014, when it started to become clear that the government wasn't going to just wait for us to do our thing, yeah. um, <laughs> that they wanted to proceed with tearing down some of the larger buildings and clearing the way for new tenants in some of the other buildings. They basically put the founders on a deadline and they're yeah. saying, look, if you're going to pull stuff out of these buildings that you want, you need to pay us for its weight and scrap. And you need to put them in a protected area where we know that they're, you know, that you're going to use them. Yeah. Right, right, right. And because they didn't want us just saying, oh, we'll take everything. <laughs> right. Um, we had to, you know, start being a little choosy and Marco, who is, you know, certainly the more technical partner had toured the campus many times. He literally at certain points would just put like a do not scrap sign <laughs> that he just wrote oh, by hand and stick it to the side of something yeah. in order to at least give the guys pause, Yeah, you know, to make them like wait before they just hauled something out of the building and, and turned it into scrap metal. Eventually, we were able to extract everything that we were able to take for free. And then it got down to these last few major bits that we couldn't take for free, that the government wanted uh, some yeah. compensation for. Yeah, yeah. And that yeah. was, of course, the reason for the Kickstarter campaign, was to mm -hmm. raise the money to get those last bits of equipment. And the point being that this stuff was all necessary for the end goal which is to be fully self-contained, able to do from start to finish in-house. Right, right. Basically, buy raw materials, ship finished products. And, I mean, we all know how the Kickstarter went. It went incredibly well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We raised the money that we needed, plus some. We were able to actually buy more equipment than we had originally uh, planned. Oh, wow. We were able to find a good place to salvage all this stuff. We also, at that time, got all of the intellectual property, all of the printed stuff. Oh, that's awesome. Going back yeah. nearly 100 years. Whoa. Pallets and pallets and pallets of shrink-wrapped, bound volumes of stuff. That's crazy. Marco, before everything got wrapped up in plastic, Marco kind of picked and went through a lot of stuff and, and pulled out things that he thought would be useful to us 
you know, in the short term. The rest of it is sitting in a warehouse, uh, Indiana Jones style, you know. Right, right, uh, right. <laughs> waiting to hopefully eventually be completely digitized into a searchable, indexable oh, database yeah. Um, yeah. that we can use moving forward to kind of shorten our R&D processes. Um, yeah. But the really the most critical stuff, stuff that we're using now, stuff that we're going to use in the next few years um, is, is, you know, we're still looking at the original documents. You know, it hasn't been scanned. It's not little stuff like the backing paper um, for 120 film, which we're working on. We did have a PDF, which was nice. Mm-hmm. Someone back in the, you know, early 2000s took, made a scan of a mechanical drawing from probably the 70s or 80s. Oh, wow. wow. That has details of all the... Yeah, yeah. The measurements, where the numbers go, you know, all that mm-hmm. stuff. So, in some cases, we have modern digital files to work with. Uh, in some cases, <laughs> like the uh, metal canister that wraps around a roll of 35 millimeter film. Uh, that thing has got a, a very odd shape. Right. Um, it's not simply flat and then bent. It's actually got little tabs and little... And it's... Yeah. You have mm-hmm. to pre-bend yeah. it. You have to pre-bend it at a certain angle to put it in the automated machine. That was something that we needed because we've been uh, searching for a new manufacturer for those metal plates. And that was a case where we had to pull the actual, you know, three foot wide mechanical drawing that someone sat at a drafting board and drew in pencil by hand. And then Nikola took uh, photos of it with his camera and that's what we used yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to create a new template uh, that a uh, manufacturer could use to make these new metal plates. So there's, you know, and I think the, the important thing that a lot of people forget when they get angry at us online is that we've done all of this. I don't even count myself. Right. You're like, cause I'm not in Italy. I'm in New York um, with between five and eight people. It's crazy. That's just mind-blowing. Yeah. You know, there, there's been a little bit of a rotation of people who've come in worked for six or eight months on a very specific thing that they had expertise in. And then when they're done or when some other delay happened or whatever, because we can't just afford to keep a staff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That don't do anything. Right, you know? right, right. <laughs> um, and so, like, every little detail, like finding the the blueprint for the canister wrapper, you know, that means someone has to go to the warehouse, figure out which pallet it's on, unwrap the pallet, dig in there, find it, come back, you know, scan it. You know, it's, and every little thing that we've had to do has been very painstaking like that. Nothing has been, you know, in as much as since, the whole asbestos debacle in the spring of 2015 when we were sort of shut out of basically that was the end of our original Kickstarter plan. We tried and tried and tried to get back on track and it, it just, there were competing priorities where the government was prioritized with getting the building itself, the grounds and the building suitable for us to meet the, the accreditation process, um, we were instead focused on making the backer rewards. Right. And these things just were not compatible with one another. And the, yeah, it, it, you know, it, it was, it was very chaotic. And as much as we tried, something new would pop up, you know, and it was Mm. often something that required us to shut down for two, three weeks in order for the government to go get bids on contractors and then have those contractors come to the middle of nowhere in Italy. This is another thing that has impacted. I mean, it's probably added a close to nine months on all of our delays. It's right. simply the fact that the factory is way off the beaten path. The contractors that we would typically hire usually have to travel 45 minutes to an hour or more wow. yeah. in order to, to get to the facility which means that when you're scheduling a contractor, they have to know that they have that empty block of time in their schedule. Right. And if we, if we miss the window, it might be months before we can get them back. And that's happened oh, in a couple gosh. of cases. And in their case, they have to like 
free up their team to come to the middle of nowhere and work in an old film factory right. who is not Kodak and made of money and able to just <laughs> yeah, pay yeah. the top dollar for everything, you know? So, all of these things, you know, and a hundred thousand more have conspired against us for a very long time. So, I have a question. It, obviously, it's been a very long, painstaking process. Has there ever been moments where any one of you guys have been like, maybe this isn't going to work? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. yeah. But it's it's like, I applaud you guys for, for like, not letting all... Yeah. I mean, because that's a lot of, like, stops and, like, we don't know what's going to happen. And, and to just know that... I mean... I, for one, appreciate that you guys have been, you're still, despite everything, you're like, we're going to figure it out. We're going to wait the time we got to wait or figure out the next move. That's really commendable. And I appreciate it. I'm sure all of our listeners and, you know, the community does as well. That's just amazing. Well, I think in the case of uh, Nicola and Marco, I mean, they have skin in the game. So, right. you know, right. they're going to go right. down fighting. I mean, I would too. Um, <laughs> we all for me... Yeah, for me, it's, it's, I can so clearly see this company with our full line of products, you know, being in shops, yes, being yes, global. Yes, yes, you yes. know, I, I can so clearly see it in my head that I've never I lost faith in, in what has happened in between. You know, it's like I, the future is so clear to me That's, that the present yeah. is just I'm annoying. So, so I'm just as stubborn, Dave. I'm like, no, it's going to work. I don't, people, people will like <laughs> yeah. quit all around me and I'll be the only one like, no, 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 we can't. <laughs> Even with that said, I mean, there were, you know, I've had a couple of like uh, jobs where I went out and said, okay, I should probably right, get a job right. because this might just completely fall apart. I've not worked those jobs for a very long time though because I would get three, four months into it. I would still be obsessed with everything going on in Italy yeah. and, and not really 100% focused on my job. And, and then I would get some good news from Italy and I would say, see yeah. ya. <laughs> yeah, bye. That's great. Bye. <laughs> you know, so... There have been plenty of, of opportunities to just call it quits yeah. and walk away. Plenty of opportunities. Um, some things have been so incredibly frustrating that there didn't seem to be a solution. Right. I've got to hand it to Nikola for basically just sticking it through, yeah. you know, and Marco as well. I mean, Marco has probably stayed the busiest of anyone because there's obviously a thousand things that could be done on any given day in the factory. And Marco has been essentially living there in the town, not right. in the factory building, <laughs> but, you know, in, in the nearby tiny little town of Cairo Montanote, uh, he's kept an apartment, um, even though he technically lives in Florence, which is three and a half hours away, wow. simply because there's always something for him to do. Yeah. Wow. Um, Nicola, who makes trips back and forth more frequently than I could ever do, because I just don't like to drive that much. Right. <laughs> you know, he's always got something to do as well. And I think just being busy keeps your mind focused right. on the task right. at hand. Definitely. You know, me, I've not always been that busy. And I've had plenty of moments of like, man, uh, is this, is this going to work? Right. Like, it, right. am I just completely deluding myself? Um, but there's always been something. Uh, to to keep me excited, to keep me going, and and I can I have to say, in, in in to some degree, over time, I mean, I'm not a founder, I'm not whatever. Yeah, I have a role in the company, but I'm not an owner. But I've that hasn't stopped me from feeling a sense of ownership about it, right? And and feeling a a sense of responsibility as well to make good on the things that we've said. So, I mean, I just bought five rolls of P30. So, uh -huh. you guys are you guys are doing something. <laughs> yeah. And they came really quick, too. Yeah, yeah. I got them in like three or four days. Yeah, or something well, of like course, that. I, I set up a warehouse and everything proper in the, in the state. And we have film. I've been, you know, basically, as it stands today, we still have a bottleneck in production because we're not doing a 35 millimeter completely in-house yet. Okay. Mm. So, we're still having to work with an external partner. And that external partner just has a limit on their capacity. They have other clients and whatever. And like, so there's only so much film they can make for us in any given month. Yeah. So Nicola and I, every time there's a batch uh, ready, we have to basically figure out where to send it. Huh. <laughs> you know, how much of it can come to the States versus how much of it stays in Europe. Uh, and then when it comes to the States, then I have to decide how much to keep for the shop online and how much to send to other shops. 
And this is going to continue to be the, the way we have to work for the next four or five months until our capacity is such that we're making enough to supply everybody with what they need at all right. times. Yeah. You know, it's only then that we have to worry about growing and pulling in new customers and new shops right. and all that kind of right. stuff. Of course, that's going to get completely thrown to the wind as soon as we start making 120 mm-hmm. or as soon as we start making another speed of, of film. Because, you know, on, on any day, we can only make so much film. And, of course, we're not making film at 100% of our capacity. But we do understand that there is a limit. Right. Yeah. And yeah. we don't want to just start making everything that we can make immediately because we have to grow it. We have to test it. We have to make sure that the quality stays consistent. And we're doing this with a skeleton crew. So it all has to be done in this very iterative way. This, you know, let's make this, let's try two rolls. Let's try four rolls. Let's try eight rolls and make sure that it's consistent and, and up to standard. And we're almost at the point where we're, I mean, we definitely are maxing out what our partner can do in terms of converting 35 millimeter into canisters. We're 95% of the way done with making 120. Mm. Um, There's just a couple little details that we have to chase down. And then we can start basically taking the one roll and maybe cutting a couple of bands into 35 millimeters and a couple of bands into 120. 120, we're going to be making completely in-house, which is... um, the goal. Yeah, that's huge. That's awesome. And already our team, basically the, the mechanics on our staff, uh, have been working on setting up our 35 millimeter automated production so that we can do all the 35 millimeter finishing in house as well. Once those two things are online, then I think everybody out there is going to see a real acceleration in what we're able to, to do. Um, while we still have some bottlenecks and we still have machines that we need to get working 100%, there still is this kind of pressure to keep production lower. But as soon as we can do the end-to-end production of these two formats, oh, and 4x5 as, as well, um, in-house, then we can really open up and start expanding the production much faster. Because not only will we be able to, but we'll have more formats that we have to fulfill. Right. You know, cutting a 4 by 5 sheet off of a roll of uh, film that's, I don't know, in inches, 20 centimeters, 22 centimeters wide. So cutting 4 by 5 sheets is actually consumes a lot of master rolls. Right, yeah. right, right. Right? Cutting 120 film also consumes a higher number of master rolls than cutting 35 millimeter. So we have, from the old days of the factory, we actually have cutting algorithms that, algorithms is a fancy word for it, <laughs> basically diagrams that sh- that help us to cut the film optimally so that everybody gets the sweet spot in the middle, uh, but that we're able to maximize the whether we get um, 16 millimeter cinema, and two bands of 35 millimeter and maybe one band of 120 out of one roll. Um, and since we'll be finishing it in-house, that gets rid of the big bottleneck. And we already have a second speed of, of film pretty much ready to go. Oh, yes. As soon as we can make it without interfering with making what we're already making. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like you guys are in a, in a good place, finally. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, I've been really, really happy over the past... Uh, Really since August, when the first kind of uh, new production was tested. And we discovered, A, that we had eliminated almost all of the problems that we would have uh, previously with waste, Mm. with material that we coated, but had little issues with it that we would have to cut off the master roll. Right. And just throw away. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So... Most of that waste has been eliminated. The consistency has been spot on. Um, we've replaced a lot of parts on the coder. We've upgraded several things like some filters. We The internal camera that will actually mark, quote unquote, mark places on the film where it sees an, alarm, an anomaly. Um, we, of course, as we published on our website, we upgraded the coding room to a clean room. So we have 
a new ventilation system. We have new plumbing. I mean, it's a very, very long list of things that uh, have been done leading up to August of last year. And in the time since August, it's been, okay, let's make one master roll this week and let's tear it apart and test it and make sure everything's perfect. And then let's make two master rolls mm. and let's send one to our partner and get them to make some 35 millimeter. And then it was four and then it was eight. And so on a re relatively steady schedule, we've been expanding the production. And as soon as we got to a point where we thought we had enough film to get started with sales, we opened the shop. Yeah. That was the best. Yeah. <laughs> that was, um, what, first week of December. Yep. You know, now we're in the first week of February. We're, I think, in the next couple of days, going to get some restock to some of the shops in Europe and a couple of shops here in the U.S. who sold out very quickly with their first batch. And, you know, my attitude and, and definitely Nikola's attitude with regard to everything that's happened in the past, the whatever sort of negative vibes might still be floating around about the Kickstarter, all of the kind of false starts that we've had, everything that's happened. There's nothing to say about it, really. I mean, we can apologize and we can say this and that happened. And we've done our best to communicate to people what has changed over time. But, you know, not everyone wants to sit around and read a bunch of dry technical details about <laughs> some factory in Italy that is trying to make film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there are varying degrees that people understand the whole story. And there was a point at which this past fall, Nicola and I were having a discussion. And I was like, you know, we just have to show it. We just have to show our work. You know, that's right. it. That's all we can do is just put all that behind us by introducing new things yeah. that people can start talking about yeah. now. And eventually what happened in the first five years of our existence will just become a foot right. You know, this is, this happened with Polaroid. This happened with, you know, this has happened with many, many different companies over time right. where lots of fits and starts and stops and problems. And, and then it eventually mellows out. Everyone knows what they're doing. And, you know, a big brand is born uh, yeah. from that. So the goal this year is just to show people uh, who have reasonable doubts that not only can we make film, but we can make various formats. We can make different kinds of film. You know, we haven't forgotten about color at yeah. all. <laughs> I mean, to, to us, like, if you have the capability to make color... You got to make color. Right. I mean, plain and simple. Right. And our coder can coat color film. It's not strictly limited to black and white. And we have a lot of the research has already been done for us in the past by 3M. It's simply a matter of getting all the fundamentals right, right. first. Yeah. yeah. And black and white film being the easiest film to produce, sure. you know, on the manufacturing side, it makes sense to use it as the test bed for everything that will follow, you know, and that means getting all of the processes a hundred percent nailed down, you know, so that there's like muscle memory yeah. so that we do them in our yeah, sleep. Yeah, yeah. And once that happens, taking the step into color is going to be so much easier, so much fat. It's going to happen a lot faster. I think than anyone would really expect. There's going to be a long wait right? from the time that we first start testing to when we're actually manufacturing is actually going to be relatively short yeah. because we've done all of our homework. We've gotten everything, you know, hammered down by that time. Something to look forward to. I'm excited for that. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Uh, you know, just the other day, Nicole and I were talking about, we've been seeing in our Instagram, a lot of Solaris, uh, Ferrania Solaris images pop up. So people are buying expired Solaris film uh, or they're posting yeah. uh, shots that they took you know, 10 years ago on Solaris film. And I, you know, the word is that the team in the factory never really thought that Solaris was all that great <laughs> from a technical standpoint sure. or from maybe from a manufacturing standpoint. I'm not really sure, but yeah, there, there was always this talk that, you know, something could be done that was better. And, uh, you know, my, my point of view is, you know, we're not really interested in making, I guess people are calling them art films or, you know, special purpose films, right. films that have been 
cooked or doctored in yeah, some way yeah. to, to mm-hmm. give some sort of special effect. We want to make relatively traditional films. Uh, but in cases like Solaris, where there is a, a very distinct look and feel, I don't want us to just kind of throw that out because the technicians uh, thought that it was too grainy yeah, or something. Yeah. I, I, don't, yeah. I don't know exactly what they have against it. But, but, you know, essentially, we're back at the point that we were in 2014, where we're saying, you know, all things are possible. We have a proper factory that can make color and black and white still and cinema film, period, you know. And it's one of the few that's left on planet Earth. Wow. And we plan to get everything out of it that we possibly can. That's such good news. It's crazy, too, because we live in, like, such a microwavable future. Everybody thinks that it's like a snap and things are done and it just doesn't yeah. it doesn't work that way right. i mean especially for like uh, like a quality i mean i love p30 i had a couple of the alpha rolls and was such a a fan of that film and now the fact that i have you know more ready to shoot i think i mean it's it's quality stuff and you can tell that you guys like really took your time and figured out you just didn't want to rush something and throw something out there that you know wasn't going to be i, I got to tell you when I saw the first shots of P30, um, I cried. Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I believe it. Yeah. yeah. It was partially out of relief. Right. <laughs> you know, that we had, had finally had something yeah. making an image right. on, on right. film. But it was also this sort of um, really happy, like, oh, and it, it has a very distinct look. Mm. It does. It, doesn't, it yeah. really does. Yep. It doesn't just look like every other black mm. and white film. I love the fact that it's kind of tricky to shoot, you know, to get the best result out of it. You have to really be careful. <laughs> you know, it, it's not a film for all purposes yeah. Yeah. or all situations. And we're not here to kind of say what situations, but I think people have slowly learned that, you know, shooting it indoors, for example, right. Uh, without the addition of a flash or serious strong light, probably not the best (laughs) use of of your role because it's so contrasted to begin with. And then, you know, a lot of modern developers tend to add contrast because the major producers of film over the past 50 years have made black and white films that are relatively neutral Mm. in their inherently. And so the developer is there to kind of add contrast. Bump yeah, bump it up. That has to be really controlled when you're processing P30 film because you don't necessarily want to add contrast. The film is in its nature very contrasty. And, you know, Nicole and I have talked about, you know, it, it's more difficult to use than Tri-X or HP5, mm-hmm. you know. And that's something that actually that will never change and that we don't want to change. And that I think is almost what gives it its its unique character. Even people who are seasoned darkroom veterans sometimes have a little trouble because it's so unlike most of the black and white films that have been on the market in the past 25, 30 years. Um, There's a couple that are similar that have the high contrast. The new Ilford film, for example... Um, that they just released recently, yeah. yeah, yeah, is is also very strong contrast from the start. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, for me, like not just having a product, but having a product that has a unique kind of look and and which I I thought was beautiful. It was it was a huge thing for me, you know, a huge moment. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I'm glad it's not just another Tri-X or HP five. Right. Like, I'm glad it has it has a place and. Mm-hmm. It definitely has a place in my arsenal. Like that high contrast black and white is my, it's my jam. So it's your that's, favorite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's perfect for me. Yeah. I mean, the, my first role, the first role I ever shot, I shot in a wide lux. Oh, wow. That I, cool. that I borrowed from a friend of mine. The second role I ever shot, I shot in my Olympus XA2 mm-hmm. and I hated it. <laughs> and the reason I hated it was because my XA2, bless its heart, Probably not the best metering yeah. in the world yeah. these days. Um, and then, so I, I then started shooting in my Nikon and and taking manual meter readings and and all that kind of stuff. And and I was like, okay, this 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 little Italian beauty is a little high maintenance, yeah. but <laughs> I heard she's fickle. Yeah, but I like that about yeah. it. In the end, you know, it's the same reason I 
you know, when I first picked up that Hasselblad and I was like, okay, I have to pull out this metal plate yep. in order to take a picture. <laughs> Dark you slide. Know. Yeah. It was, it was finicky. Mm -hmm. And I guess for whatever reason, I like finicky. <laughs> we'll be right back with the listener question for Dave right after this message from our sponsor. Support for Analog Talk also comes from Polaroid Originals. Go to PolaroidOriginals.com and use the offer code ANALOGTALK10 at checkout to receive 10% off your next purchase. All right, guys, this is a part of the show where we break off and take a question from one of our listeners. And this week's listener is at MatthewM2, and he asks, Keeping film alive is hard. What are the pushbacks, if any, that you get from the industry? Yeah, that's a tricky one. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, it, it, to some degree, we're all competing with one another. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, I didn't guess I didn't think about it that way. You know, the, the the big companies who make film, anyone who makes the film, we're competing with each other in some indirect way. And then there are plenty of other brands who buy film that's already manufactured and sell it under their own brand. Yeah. So they're each competing with one another in some ways. You know, the the pushback, if there's, if I can really call it that, has mostly been. I'm trying to think of a quick analogy. So making film is requires even if you kind of do everything in house, you're not going. You don't have a mining operation that's going out and mining the raw yeah, materials. Yeah. In most cases, no one really makes their own base anymore. Uh, the film base. So there's a couple of companies that to buy base from. We're all competing for the kind of lower level resources, hmm. which have become few and far between. Yeah. Everyone right now, everyone is having an issue with providing enough 35 millimeter canisters into the manufact into the industry for all of the brands to to fill. Wow, you know that's a, a bit of an issue right now. So the pushback is that. Wow. In the downsizing that's happened over the past 20 years, a lot of companies have vanished that provided some essential bit of kit to the major manufacturers. Yeah. And the major manufacturers have in turn had to either figure out how to do it themselves in-house or find another supplier. And that's what, where we've wound up uh, by, you know, January or February 2020 is that there could be... <laughs> There should be, probably, is the better word, more infrastructure for all of the manufacturers to draw from than there is. Yeah. Um, but everyone still feels like, even with the resurgence, even with the recent shortages, that it's still a, a small-scale problem. And that opening in a large-scale solution would be the wrong thing to do. Yeah, that's got to be scary. <laughs> So it's more, you know, it's basically becomes an issue of like the people who are those that infrastructure right now are trying to figure out how to do more. Yeah. Right. Wow. You know, with with what they've got. That's, you know, there's that. And then, you know, pushback that we get. We've had certain instances where we've approached other brands uh, to collaborate with us yeah. in some way or another. Yeah. And it hasn't worked out mm -hmm. so far, um, for the most part. We feel like there still exists within this industry, and this is probably true in other industries as well, a sense that collaborating with your competitor is not a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily agree with that, right. you know, because we tend to separate things. Like there's, there's the brand and the products that the brand sells, and then there's the factory. And the factory doesn't inherently care. Hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who, which brand its products are made for, yeah. you know, in, in thinking about it in, from a step back, you know, the factory is designed to make things. We put our brand on them because it's our factory, but Franny has a long tradition of making film for others. Um, and not just film, but other products like canisters or like uh, 120 rolls or, um, or at a certain point in time, even machines because they have their own machine shop Man. Wow. and they would make, custom machines for, for other manufacturers. So there's part of that sense that still exists within Film Ferrania today that we're open to working with other, with our quote unquote competitors, because both Nico and I believe very firmly in that old cliche, uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. In other words, if, if there's a strong industry, 
and we can be a player in that in a strong industry, that it helps everybody, Definitely. including us. Right. That's not we've not met a lot of uh, other people in the industry that feel the same way. That's unfortunate. That's, oh, yeah. that's so sad. I that's know. so sad. Because it's true, you got to keep everything afloat. So I'm not saying they don't exist, right? You know, yeah. maybe one or two of them out there yeah. hearing this uh, will agree right. and get in touch with us. Maybe it's our presentation. Maybe it's the fact that we hadn't made anything yet. Sure, that people were just dubious. You know, uh, regardless, you know, we remain open to the idea of of helping the industry to lift all boats, so to speak. I love that. It's just crazy to think that there's so many things like that go into this. I, I know. Film, film canisters. I would have never thought about that. Yep. I just, you know, I thought they magically appeared or something. Yeah. I don't know how, <laughs> where, yeah. where my mind was with yeah. that. But yeah, like, uh. Yeah, we had this very special bird that just <laughs> laid them <laughs> like eggs. That's what I thought. No. Yeah, I knew it. Me In too. Fact, what do you mean? There's so, not? So the film canister, just think of a, an empty film canister. Yep. Okay. So it's the outer shell, which is a metal plate. Yeah. There's the core, which is the spool inside. Yeah. There's the caps on each end. There's the felt yeah. yep. that goes along the entrance. And then there's that little bit of adhesive tape. Oh, yeah. It's a mm -hmm. lot. And that that little... holds the film to the spool. Yeah. And each of those has a spec. It has to be within a certain size. It has to be within a certain tolerance yeah. in order for it to be loaded into our automated machine and the machine to feed everything through properly and, and put it together properly. Even the tape has to be like made of a certain material that's non-acidic and wow. yada yada. And the adhesive has a certain tack strength. Wow. Um, yeah. And there's, they're like detailed engineering documents on all this stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, 120 film is... You know, the backing paper mm -hmm. itself is incredibly complicated because it's not just any old paper. You don't just like go to a paper manufacturer and say, hey, make me backing paper. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. It's, a, right, right. it's a specific kind and weight and, uh, and makeup of paper. It's got carbon black coated on one side to make it opaque. Yeah. And the, of course, the printing on the other side has to be very specific so that it lines up in your camera properly and, and all that. Uh, plus, there's the spool. Then there's the foil that the mm -hmm. 120 gets wrapped in. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We're right now trying to think of what we want to do with packaging in general because we, we want to reduce the amount of packaging right. because it's just instant trash. Yeah, it really is. Yep. And yet, we also want it to look good on the shelf in a store. Yeah. You know? So, we're trying to like wrestle with this, how elaborate do we go or how minimal do we go and does it work with our machinery? Is it something that we can source reliably in terms of the materials? Mm -hmm. it, it, all these different factors. I wrote this like six-page... Google Doc that basically talks about our presentation in general. And that's everything from packaging to the way the that shops will display the film and <laughs> the way we ship it, the way we ship it to warehouses who need a special barcoding and stuff like that on the side in order to make that very efficient. And then how we ship it to customers. It's so layered yeah. that oftentimes Nicole and I have to just break it all down in these long documents where we just describe all the steps. Yeah. Just to wrap our head around all the steps. And then individually we go into each step and, and start to expand from there. And it's this like fractal yeah. of, of complexity. That is so much work. Goodness. And that's just the packaging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the easy, wow. technically the easy part. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The easy part. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. And I, you know, some people just don't care about any of this. Yeah, like yeah. they don't, it's like, yeah, it's hard get on with it. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah. I totally get that. I totally understand that. But it, it, it's definitely given me uh, a lot more empathy <laughs> with other sure, companies sure, who sure, run sure. into shortages or manufacturing issues. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Well, that's a good answer. Good answer yeah. to the question. Yes, definitely. So, okay. So we have a two part camera question. I do believe you answered this before. So I wonder if it changed. Yeah, it might be a little easier for you now. <laughs> but uh, we have the first part of the question is uh, the desert island camera question. You know, you can only take one. It's like the end all be all. It's all you got on the island. Okay, if I, just one. 
<laughs> I'm sitting here looking at my cameras uh-huh. like, on the shelf. See. Hmm. If I had to pick just one, it's got to be my SX70. Yeah, yeah. great Good. answer. It, yeah. It's got to yeah. be. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Because it's just such an amazingly beautiful object. Yeah. It really is. It really so is. So even if I can't use it, even if I run out of film and I can't get more <laughs> film on my desert island, it's, at least I have this right. beautiful thing. Right. Yes. You know. <laughs> this example of like the peak of human industrial design. Yeah, I'm actually reading that book that Azrael recommended, or was it Azrael? Yeah, he recommended it's about Edwin Land's like feud with Kodak when they. Uh-huh. So I read that book as yeah, well. So yeah, so the beginning of it where he's just inventing all these things and like I, I, he's just I'm just at the part where he's coming into like. Oh, I want to do for maybe get into photography. So I cannot wait to hear all about the SX70 <laughs> and how it came to be. But that's he, he is a fascinating man. Holy cow. Oh, really? I mean, 100%. Yeah. And people oftentimes will compare him to Steve Jobs. Yeah. But and I think that's appropriate. But even Jobs had limits on what he was able to do. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. he had a board of directors and he had investors to answer to and all this other stuff. Land, for the longest period of time, didn't really have those constraints. Right. Mm. And I think that's the reason we have an SS- yeah. SX-70 camera is because he didn't he didn't answer to anybody except his internal muse. And that's why we have instant film. Oh, yeah. Love it. <laughs> It's a good book, everybody, if you're looking for, for uh, yeah, to hear all I'll about it. wait till you get into the actual trial I know. Stuff. I can't wait. I can't wait. It's, 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 I, I think from a certain perspective, some people would see it as a little bit dry, yeah. but I kind of blazed through right. it. I mean, right. I found it really fascinating. I learned a lot about the differences in the manufacturing techniques that they used, how Kodak was trying to distinguish their product from uh, Polaroid's product and, and also just the nature of how cases like that work between two huge corporations, yeah. Yeah. you know, suing one another. So it, it, it was enlightening in, in many, many different ways. Yeah. I, I recommend any biography on Edwin Land yeah. because his story is just fascinating. Yeah. It really is. Okay. All right. Part two. Part camera two. Question. All right. So this is, we call it the white whale. Is there anything out there that you've had your eye on and never been able to get one or you just haven't pulled the trigger on buying it? A Paul Bell Makina. Ooh. Oh. What is that? Uh, Paul Bell Makina is a six by seven mm-hmm. rangefinder yes. camera with a beautiful Nikon oh. lens that um, you can still buy. I mean, they're they're out there. They're just incredibly expensive, yeah, they and really are. from everything that I've read, a little bit delicate. Oh, interesting. Let's check it out. You know, so in other words, they need servicing. Yeah. Uh, with some regularity, and I am not particularly delicate with my cameras. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> I I don't treat them probably as well as I should. Yeah. <laughs> Man. Yeah, so Paul Almakina, that's an easy one. Man. Because, you know, like the SX70, I just love the industrial design of it. Yeah, it's sweet. It looking. has a bellows. Mm-hmm. Oh. Like I said before, I love anything with a bellows. Right. <laughs> and uh and they're for a 6x7 medium format camera, they're tiny. Yeah. Oh. Compared yeah. to all the others. Yeah. I mean, I have a Pentax 67 that I feel like I need to go to the gym yeah, a little bit to be able to carry <laughs> again. Yeah, yeah. Because I've gotten a little out of shape in the past year. And- <laughs> Good answer. So, so, Chris, just so you can visualize it, it's yeah. almost it's almost got like a Mamiya 7 kind of look to it. It's okay. like one of those like bigger range finders, but it's got bellows and it looks really, really cool. It's a really cool design. I'm going to check it out. It's sleeker than a, than a Mamiya. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Simpler overall design, mm. but it works in a lot of the same ways. No interchangeable lenses. You're stuck with one lens. Oh, okay. If you want, you can buy a second one that has a wide lens on it. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yes. Get, um, get two of them. Two of them. Yeah, yeah. If I've got five grand just you laying know, why around. Not? Right, right. Man. Well, awesome. Yeah, this has this been is, awesome, this Dave. Is great. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you for all the updates. We're definitely excited to see what Ferrania has in store. I cannot wait for the color stuff. Obviously, I, we haven't we haven't said it like officially, officially, mm-hmm. but I think I've pretty much implied uh, that one twenty film is on the way. Ugh. Oh, I can't, I can't Yay. wait, I can't wait. Yeah, we we're, there's still a couple little details to figure out, but you know they're not. Uh, game breaking awesome. you know mm-hmm. it's just we want to be able to do it completely in-house and so we're still negotiating with a couple of partners to make some of the components you know we've already got the spools all right we've already got the foil and the boxes <laughs> right. oh, you know yes 
That's so exciting. Yeah. Oh, man. Thank you for. I can't. I can't yeah, wait myself because yeah. 120 is my favorite. Yeah, it's, it's my jam. Yes, for sure. And thank you to you and everybody at Ferrania for sticking with it. We, I mean, I, we all appreciate it. Heck yeah. <laughs> As Nico loves to say, "What to do? What to do? <laughs> I love it. What to do? <laughs> it's his favorite English expression." <laughs> You know, when I'm lamenting to him about something, what to there do? You go. What to do? That's it, right there. What to do? Man, I'm using that. All we can do is keep moving That's forward. Right. Yeah, for real. So, where can everybody check you out? Like you personally, and like, is there Ferrania stuff website and stuff you want to plug? Well, I'm uh, very easily Googleable by my name, Dave Bias, right. because I have no creativity when it comes to creating usernames. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm just Dave Bias everywhere. Cool. Instagram, that Twitter. Works. Uh, on my own website uh, and filmferrania.it oh. is our is our primary website the shop for the US is at filmferrania.com and um, basically anything that you want to know about us you can learn from there or follow us we're at filmferrania on Twitter Instagram and Facebook great awesome Timothy what about you guys you can head over to at Timothy makeups that is my Instagram and Twitter I also make film photography related YouTube videos easiest way to find it is just type in timothy.makeups or Timothy makeups in the search bar you'll find a bunch of stuff there Chris where are you so I am crispy photo on Twitter Instagram and YouTube and I found out recently you have to keep crispy photo together as a little word otherwise it pulls up other people so crispy oh. photo um, good to know good to and, know on youtube and i've been trying to step my youtube game up so <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> and then we are analog talk pod on twitter analog talk podcast on instagram we have a facebook page and a group you can join and share stuff and all that that's it thanks Yay. again dave of course i'm always happy to do this we really appreciate Definitely. it thank you bye-bye Bye. All right, first off, we want to thank Dave Bias and Film Ferrania for the update today. That was awesome. I can't tell you how excited I am, and I know Chris is very excited as well, for the release of 120 film, 4x5, color, all that stuff. It was just great to hear that you guys are still, you know, pushing forward after all the the drama that has ensued over the years with the factory and all that all that crazy stuff dave thanks again for being on the show and letting us know what's up guys that's going to take us to patreon head over to patreon.com slash analog talk like i said at the top of the show you can get the show early on mondays two days early for just a buck even all the support for you guys just means the world to us all the patreons already supporting the show thank you so much thank you thank you thank you and uh yeah until next week we'll have an all new show and we'll see you then take care guys later Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.